you can hardly turn on the radio without hearing a song that's not either entirely about this topic or at least doesn't allude to it in some way. It's almost even harder if you have Netflix or Amazon Prime to get on there and find a movie that's not either completely about it or it's at least not kind of a subtopic in the storyline. Every, uh, if you go and you listen to podcasts or short stories or, you know, talk shows, there's so many of them out there about this is how you get it. And then there's other talk shows that talk, well, this is how you maintain it. And once you get it, how you deal with it. And then there's even others. Okay, well, this is how you can get over it. It's the pivotal conversation for teenagers, young people, old people, grandparents talk to their daughters about it or their sons about it. We are a culture that is in love with romance. We revolve around it. You, you can't talk to anybody or family that, that, or meet somebody that hasn't been impacted by this relationship between, between two people called love. It's what kind of holds our society together. And it's not just our American culture, but it's every culture. And it's every culture since the beginning of time, isn't it? Yes, different cultures pursue it in different ways, and there's different methods of how it works and nuances with it. But overall, it's been kind of the social glue and structure to society since the beginning of time. This relationship that two people find, this commitment that holds two people together. Recently, our generation, after uh, millions and millions of years and billions of, yeah, billions and billions of people, that is, who have kind of experienced this relationship, we've kind of paved the way to say, you know what, in order for this relationship to be good, in order for love to be good, there can be no rules. There can be no governing powers over love. In order for, it to be, for people to experience love, you, no one can tell you what to do. No, there can be no governing law with it. But the funny thing is, there is one law that everybody abides by. It doesn't matter if you're the furthest left-wing person or the furthest right-wing person, you agree on this rule when it comes to romance. It doesn't matter if you're a junior higher experiencing love for the first time and holding hands at lunch period, or if you're celebrating your 50th anniversary with your significant other, you agree that in order for this romantic relationship to work, this law has to be held. Even our liberal media agrees on this. You, you've seen them, the magazines, when you go through the grocery store, and they talk about the different celebrities and the relationships they have. And it seems like, you know, for celebrities, they can have as many relationships as they want. And it's okay. And it makes headlines, and people are excited about it, and they're encouraged. But there's one thing if they do that people don't like. And you've seen it on the headlines in the magazines that says, so-and-so cheated. Adultery unfaithfulness. Several years back, there was a famous golfer, I won't mention his name, but he was doing really well, and it came out in the media that he had been cheating on his wife, and the media creamed him over this. I mean, the funny thing is, if he wasn't married, it wouldn't have been a big deal, but because he had entered into this relationship, the guy had to come out and make a public apology to his wife and his fans and say, look, what I've done is wrong, and I regret my actions. We've even seen this with basketball players, celebrities, that when, for some reason, when this rule is broken, it's not okay. Why is that? 
Why in the first place are we a culture that loves romance? Why is it that it, despite our efforts to say there should be no rules with romance, we hold to this rule? Well, there's a man, the story of a man, that he defied this rule. It didn't make any sense, but he doesn't, and I think there's meaning to it. You see, one day this man, he was well-known in his community. He uh, was of good reputation. He was considered a godly man. And one morning, he, uh, he got up and he went out of his house. His neighbors saw him. He waved to his neighbors, and, you know, just his regular routine. He's walking through the street. People know him. But he takes a different turn one morning. And he keeps walking, you know, waving to people. Everything's good. But he keeps walking down this street, and it takes him to this part of town that good godly men don't go to. And he goes up to this building that most men like him wouldn't be seen standing in front. And, you know, whispers start to spread around the town. Hey, do, you, do you see? What's he doing? And he looks at the building and he walks in. In shock with the little town. But what's even more shocking is he makes a payment there. And he walks out with a woman from the brothel. And he takes her back into his home. And obviously, people are shocked. The word is spread like crazy because people find out later that he marries the woman and he has children with the woman. But what's not shocking about it is shortly after having the children, being with him, being married, the woman wants to go back to her own way. So she decides, you know what, I'm going to leave all this. I'm going to go back to the house. I'm going to go back into my ways of prostitution, and I'm going to enjoy it. But what the shocking thing is, is that the man, instead of saying, you know what, you broke the unspoken rule of adultery. I'm done. I'm going to find someone else. That's what everyone else would have wanted him to do. Instead, he goes back. He goes back and opens the door and he makes another payment and brings her back, brings her back home and says, I love you, I'm married to you, and you're mine. And in this story, we see time and time and time that this man pursues and pursues and pursues. And the answer to that story, we're going to get to later, but the answer to that explains why all of humanity is enamored with this idea of romance. Before we get there, we're going to look at yet another man who also defied this, the rule, who also committed adultery, but in his case, he's the one who did the wrong. And we're going to step into his shoes this morning, and we're going to, as he gets caught, and as the curtains come off, and his, his sin is exposed, we're going to see how he responds, and we're going to learn for our own lives, how do we respond when we've made mistakes. And I know some of you here, you're like, okay, well, Abel, I haven't committed adultery. Why do I got to learn how to respond when you commit adultery? Well, maybe you haven't, maybe you have, but I think one thing that all of us know is we've messed up. And I think every single one of you have experienced that moment where you look at someone that you love, you look at someone that you care about, and you see the pain in their eyes. And you know, I did that. I've caused them that pain and you see it and you know it and your guilt comes over you and you don't know what to say because you know that what I did is too big for sorry. What do you say? What do you do when you mess up? We're going to learn from David's life today that in our pursuit of God, we must be willing to confront our sin, 
to confess our sin and to be contrite over our sin in order to conquer it. But before we go into David, I want to give you a little backstory. Ethan was with you last week. I heard he did a great job. Um, he talked about this shocking story in the life of David. David was doing well. Kingdom was established. He's a man after God's own heart. And then all of a sudden, he's on his roof one day. He let his guard down. He's comfortable. And what happens? He sees this woman bathing. So he gives in to his lust. He calls her over. He sleeps with her. And then he finds out the news. She's pregnant. And all of a sudden, he's like, well, my adultery is going to come out. I don't want to lose my kingdom. I don't want to lose my reputation. I've got to hide this thing. So what does he do? He comes up with this plot. He has Uriah, her husband, come over. He's trying to figure it out. He's conniving. He's lying about things. He's manipulating. And then sin, we see the spiral downward to eventually, he's like, okay, I just got to kill the guy. I can't have my sin come out, so I'm going to kill him. So he kills him, and then David thinks, he got away with it. We know at this point in our story that we're going to read this morning, it's been at least nine months because the baby that was conceived in adultery is now born. And David all this time is like, I made it. I got away with it. It's okay. We're going to see God confront him. If you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to see what God does in our story. Still with me? 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, who's Nathan? Nathan is a prophet of God. Uh, He would have been a man that knew David. He was the man that spoke to God. And so David knew him. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there was two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. So for us, I think a lot of you probably just think of this as a pet or a dog, right? I know there's some of you out there, you put clothes on your dog, you know, and you walk him around. If you're a person after my own heart, you can picture a cat here. Because, you know, cats are far superior. Anyway, that's, that's the word of the Lord. But um, so, so picture this. Is, it's a pet, right? He loves it. It's an intimate member of the family. And then here we go, verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler to come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that had belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. You see the shock. You see the the discrepancy in this story, and so did David. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, one comment real quick is that the law wasn't if you kill somebody's lamb, you get put to death back then. They were extreme, but not that extreme. The law was you pay four times what you stole. And so David here, he's just so upset. He's he's, he's not abiding by the law or acting in a godly way. Let's read on. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have even given you more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Anites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. God confronts David, and this leads us to our first point this morning, is that without confrontation, sin will consume us. You feel the tear that David must have felt? You ever been caught? You thought nobody knew. You thought you got away with it. And all of a sudden, you're caught. That's where David was. Maybe for some of you this morning, you're at a place where you have some skeletons in the closet. You have some stuff that you've hid, and maybe no one's found out. And you're here this morning thinking, I still hope no one finds out. Or maybe you're here, and you're doing something in your life, some sin that you've been engaging with, and you're thinking, it's okay. I've got it under control. No one's going to find out. You see, God in his grace pursues David because God knows something about sin that David was blinded to. You see, our generation, we're the generation that everybody is good, aren't we? We're, you know, the generation is, you know, what's good for me is good for me, and what's good for you is good for you. But what's wrong is if I ever tell you what you're doing is wrong, because then I'd be judgmental, and that's mean. So I just want to be nice to everybody because we're all good, right? So we don't want to tell each other, hey, what you're doing is hurting you, because that's not nice, Right? We want to be nice. We want to be correct all the time. And we just want to be encouraging and loving. And so no one gets to tell us if we have blind spots. Right? And we buy into this. This idea that, hey, if I think something good, or if it makes me happy, it can't be that bad. If, it, you know, if it's something that I enjoy, then I should be able to enjoy it. And I should even be able to celebrate it, even if I kind of think it's wrong. Because it's me. But the problem with that mindset is what? That's not compatible with the gospel. Because what does the gospel say? The gospel says there is no one good. The gospel says there is none righteous, no, not one. The gospel's main message is, hey, you have a problem. Hey, there's something wrong and it's not good. Hey, there's something inside you, and last week we talked, it's like a cancer inside you. It's called sin, and it's got these tumors that are going to grow and destroy you. James tells us that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And God told Cain in the Bible, he said, hey, be careful. Sin is at your door. Don't give in to it because its desire is for you to overtake you. The Bible says we have an enemy that is out to destroy us, but our culture says, no, 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 you're fine, there's nothing wrong, and that's where David was at this point. He knew what I did was wrong. He knew, I, I, you know, he probably had those thoughts, but he probably spent a year just trying to suppress it. No, don't think about that. Happy thought. Think about something else. You ever been there? You're trying to pray, you're trying to seek the Lord, and all of a sudden the thought comes in the back of your head, well, you haven't repented of this hey, what you're doing is wrong, and you're like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't think about that. Just keep that in a little box, put it in the closet. I'm not going to think about it. That's where David was. But God, in his grace, confronts him. We need to confront our sin. 
I was talking to a person several years ago that they worked with uh, people who struggle with addiction. And I was talking to him and I was saying, okay, what's the key? Because I, at the time I had a friend who had struggled with, with a lot of drug addiction and alcohol. And I said, hey, I'm doing everything I can. You know, I'm reaching out to them. I'm praying for them. I'm texting them. I, I, I'm trying to buy them coffee. I'm trying to say, hey, let's go exercise together. You know, what, what do we got to do to help you here? And I said, it just seems like everything I do, nothing works. And they said, well, Abel, nothing you do is going to work until they want it. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? They said, until they can confront their issue and acknowledge it as something that is killing them, they're never going to get well. Guess what? The Bible says Satan is the father of all lies. You want to know what one of his lies is? You are good. You don't need to talk about it. You don't need to confront it. Just enjoy your lifestyle however you want. Nobody needs to know. It even says, hey, you're in church. You have community all around you. You're in a small group. Don't tell anybody what's going on. Don't let anyone know. You're fine. But God in his grace confronts David. So without confrontation, sin will consume us. That leads us on to our second point, and we're going to see how David responds to this. We're going to pick it up in verse, where are we? 13. David says this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. The funny thing about this, if you're first reading this, what does David say? He says, I have sinned against who? The Lord. And and we're going to read later, but Psalm 51, David even goes as far to say, God, against you and you only have I sinned. But the weird thing about that is, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the other soldiers that died from David's order to leave them in the front of the battle? What about their families, their grandparents? What about all them? Why, Why is David saying, God, it's against you? See, the reason why is because David understood something about sin that I don't think a lot of us get. I was blessed to be raised in a Christian home, and my regular understanding of sin was that don't do it because it's bad for you. Kind of like, hey, if you play with matches in the closet, you might get burned, so don't do it. And most of my life, that's how I thought of sin. I don't want to do that because I want to have a good life. I want to be blessed. I want to have a cat and a house and a truck. You know, it's going to be great. You know, if I just follow God's rules, then it'll be fine. But I think David understood something. And there's a clue here with what Nathan responds. He says, David, you have kept the Lord in contempt. Our second point is without confession, sin will always keep us in contempt. David understood something about sin, and this is what it is. You know the greatest offense of sin is not that you've just did something bad and it hurts you. The greatest offense of sin is that you've broken a relationship. It's a breach in a relationship. Why does God use the word contempt? You know what contempt means? The definition, it says this. The feeling that a person or thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving of scorn. You see, when we sin, 
at least I think of it this way. I, I think, well, God is this just judge, which is true, and he's the judge up there, and when I sin, it's not a personal thing. It's God saying, well, hey, you broke the law, so we're going to punish you, and that's it. And there's no emotion to it. There's no feeling. It's like a police officer when they give you a ticket on the street. It's just, you, you don't know them. It doesn't matter. It's just a ticket. And then you can go to court and try to fight it if you want, right? That's what it is. But David understood, no, 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 no. When I sin, I'm sinning against my God. And it's personal. And God is this personal being. You see, Satan, what was the father of all lies? What was his first attempt at causing people to stumble? The Garden of Eden. What was he trying to get Eve to do? Eat from the fruit. I think it was an avocado because that's the best fruit. But he, he's, he eat the avocado and disobey God and you're good. What's he trying to say? God isn't good enough. I know he walks through the garden with you. I know you get to experience God, but guess what? He's not good enough. If you do this, it'll be far better. If you sin, you will have more satisfaction, more pleasure, more power, more security, more authority than you will with knowing and walking with God every day. This is far better. And that's what our sin is, isn't it? It's what, what you're saying when you choose sin is, you know what, God? I don't want you. And you know what, God? I know you don't want me to do this. Lord, I know that you've called me to live holy and righteous, but you know what? I don't care about you right now. I care about me and what I want. And God told David, hey, you're holding me in contempt. You're saying, hey, God, you're worthless to me because right now this looks so much more satisfying, so much better than anything you could ever give me. And I'm gonna choose to love and pursue this. That's what sin is. It's a breach in relationship. You ever felt it? You ever go to a small group at church or work or someone you've had conflict with that there's been a problem in your relationship and you just feel the tension? You don't have to say anything. They might even be like, hey, how are you? You shake hands, but it's, you can't see it. Nobody else knows it, but you do. You feel it where it's so uncomfortable to just be in their presence. The other day I was in Costco and uh, I saw someone from my old church and we didn't really have that much conflict, but they were just kind of that person that's a little bit more on the obnoxious side, you know, very opinionated, very outspoken. And I saw them in Costco and it was one of those things where I saw them, I was like, oh, don't want to see them, you know, I hope so I just, you know, walk the other way real quick, but I was cornered because they were in the aisle and the only place I could go, have you seen it? It's this huge freezer room. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so I literally go into the freezer, and it's like 20 degrees in there. I'm in shorts, flip-flops, and a T-shirt, you know, and I'm looking out. I'm like peeking through the little curtain thing, and they decide to stand there. They're on their phone. They're chomping on the samples. And I was literally, until eventually what I did was I just kind of ran through and went like, you know, so they wouldn't see me. But, but, and again, that's not even a conflict situation, but it's that, I, I just had those feelings of like, oh, I don't want them to see me, because I don't want, I, you know, then we're going to have to talk about how they wanted the church to go this direction, I wanted to go that direction, and they liked the pastor like them, but, and I just didn't want it, but it is so much worse when you actually do have a breach in relationship, and you feel, maybe you're married, and you go home, and you guys don't talk to each other, you don't, you don't eat together. You sleep in the same bed, but you couldn't be further apart. You felt it? 
You see, David understood something about sin. He understood, God, when I sinned and I did that, it wasn't just sinning against Bathsheba. It wasn't just against Uriah. I, there was a breach in our relationship, and I held you in contempt. Well, how do you fix a relationship? It's called confession and responsibility, isn't it? Notice what David did. You know, you think, if I were David, I would have said something like this. Well, God, you know, you're right. I did commit adultery. I did, I did try to cover it up. But you got to understand, Lord, she was bathing on the rooftop. I mean, I'm just a guy, right? Men are pigs, okay? I was just walking around. What do you expect me to do, God? I mean, it's really, it's her fault. Or he could have said, you know what, Lord? I know your law for kings says that I'm really only supposed to have one wife, and I'm really not supposed to take many wives for myself. But, you know, I haven't taken that many compared to other kings, and I mean, some kings, they just go grab women whenever they want. But, you know, for the most part, I've been pretty good, God. Give me a break. Is that what David does? What does he do? He says, God, I have sinned. There's no buts. There's no deflection. My, my wife and I, we've been married for five years, or almost five years. And it was so funny and comical. When we were first married, whenever we'd say sorry, we were masters at this. Hey, I, I'm sorry that I said that, but I wouldn't have said it if you weren't this way, right? Or I, I'm sorry, you know, that I, I kind of, I was selfish, you know, the other day, but really, I mean, with a family like yours, what do you expect? You know, we would just constantly say buts, and then we read some Christian books, and what do they say? An apology with a but is what? It's not an apology, right? You're just zinging them with another thing. So then we got creative, and we're like, okay, don't use but. So it's like, I'm sorry, I just feel like you're so selfish all the time. <laughs> right? We were masters at not taking responsibility. And I felt like a turning point for our marriage is when we both realized how to say, hey, you know what, I'm sorry for me. No buts, I was wrong, and I hurt the relationship. And even if they did play a part, because most of the time they do play a part, because, you know, there's two people. But I had to learn, hey, no, 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 I'm sorry for what I did. And you see, that's what David did. Went before the Lord, confessed and said, God, I was wrong and I hurt the relationship. But he doesn't stop there. And that leads us to our third point that's going to come out. He doesn't stop there because he knows that without contrition, sin will never be cleansed and it will never be conquered. David understood something about sin. He, one, knew that it's a breach in a relationship, but he also understood that the greatest thing about sin is not that it hurts you, but it takes you away from the Lord. And we're going to read Psalm 51. Psalm 51. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read about how David prayed to God, and this is his confession prayer during his sin, after this sin. And look what he says. I want you to notice the language of this. But before we read it real quick, have you ever had someone apologize to you? They may say all the right words. They may totally take responsibility, but they've got no emotion with it. You ever had that? Where it's, hey, I, you know, I'm sorry, I did do that. But you can tell it doesn't phase them. You can tell there's no grief behind it. They're not contrite. But look, I want you to read this from David and tell me if you can hear his heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely it's sin. I was sinful at birth. 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Okay, so that part makes sense, doesn't it? He, he's praying to God. I think most of us have prayed that prayer. God, I've sinned. Please take away my sins and cleanse me. But look at, look at what he says moving forward here. Seven, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me in a wider and snow. Okay. But he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Okay, that makes sense. And then in 10 through 12, look at his heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He says this, do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, to me. restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What's he doing? He's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for his sins to be gone. We get that. But then he says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David understood something about salvation. You see, Jesus, years later, when he described salvation, he would say this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. You see, to Jesus, eternal life is not, I get to go to heaven and I get to have a little harp thing on a cloud. Eternal life is that you get to be intimate and experience relationship with God. And David got this. You know why? Because he wrote in Psalms, you remember that verse? What did he say? One thing have I have asked of the Lord. What does he say? I've got one wish. This is what I'm going to ask. You know what it was? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Okay, David, your one wish is you want to go to heaven. He didn't stop there. One thing I've asked, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple forever. David got it. David understood that there was this relationship with God. David was a man after God's own heart because David wanted to know and be intimate and experience God. And when David is writing Psalm 51, he's not just saying, God, don't punish me. He's saying, God, I'll accept the punishment. It's just, it's good. I get it. I deserve it. But God, if there's one thing here you're going to take away, please don't take away your spirit from me. God, please don't take away this relationship I have with you. And see, with us, so often sin is just, God's my judge, God's my boss, I don't want to get punished, so I'm going to do the right things, I'm going to say the right things, so God, you don't take away the real things that I love. What is that? That's selfish. That's not about God, that's about you. When I was a kid, uh, even, you know, perfect kids mess up sometimes, so I'm going to confess. But uh, I, uh, I was with my brother in the pool, and uh, he took my boat, this little boat that I had built. And uh, so he took it, and I got mad at him. I asked him for it to give him back, and he didn't do it. So I thought the best plan of action was to hit him in the face. So I hit him in the face, and unfortunately, to my surprise, blood poured out of his nose, all, and it looked like when God turned the Nile and it you know, turned red, and the, the spa just filled up red. And so he was screaming. I don't know why, but anyway, so my mom came out, and uh, for se she wasn't very happy with me <laughs> at that point. So she was kind of, it was at the point where spankings, you know, weren't really working anymore, so she had to get, you know, stronger methods. So she knew that a few days later, my best friend was going to have a party at Raging Waters. And so she said, Abel, 
you hit your brother, this is what you did, my, your dad and I love you, you know, she did it in a good way, but this is your punishment. And I remember, you know, I cried, and I said, well, you know, it's his fault anyway, he should be stronger, you know, or whatever. I, I, I tried to get out of it, but I couldn't, and so she stuck to it. So there's the few days leading up to it, I had to get clever, and I was like, okay, okay, let me think about this. So the spiritual person that I was, I creased the door open in my room, and when I heard her walk by, I got on my knees on my bed, and I said, dear God, I said, you know, kind of project, with a projecting voice. Dear God, thank you for your forgiveness and grace. I apologize for what I did to my brother. Lord, I lift up my sweet mother. God, I pray that as you have forgiven her, that she would forgive me. And as you send your reign on the evil and the good, that she, through your grace, would extend that to me and I'd be able to go to the party. What do you think she did? She was so blown away by it and inspired that I didn't get to go to the party after all. Why? because she saw right through it. I didn't care about the relationship with my brother. I didn't care about my relationship with her. I cared about me. And see, so many of us, when we confess to God, that's all we care about. God, I don't want to get punished. I want to make sure I go to heaven. I want to make sure that you bless me with finances. I want to make sure you bless me with health. I want to make sure I get that promotion. So God, I'm sorry for what I did. Let's just cover that up. Please forgive me. Take away my sin. But we're okay, right? Don't you love that when someone apologizes, say, hey, I'm sorry. Are we good now? We're good? Can we move on? David was a man after God's own heart because David's heart was broken because he said, I want to be with my God and I know that this has taken us apart. God, don't take that away. God, I want to be with you. God, I want to experience you. And see, in this, we've looked at these three points, but you know, none of them matter if you haven't experienced that relationship. You can confront your sin all you want, but if it's not about your relationship with God, it doesn't matter, Right? The Jews and the legalistic Pharisees, that's what they did. They confronted their sin. Okay, Jesus didn't care about that. You can confess your sin. The Jews had a process for that too. The Pharisees, well, you, you wash your hands this many times, you go to the temple here, and then you're good. What did Jesus say? I don't care. I want to spit you out of my mouth. You're a whitewashed tomb. Jesus is looking for the heart. David had the heart. What did David say? A broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. But how do we get that? How do you get that sense of relationship with the Lord? You can't manufacture it. Just like I couldn't manufacture feeling sorry for my brother or my mom. You can't manufacture it. He'll see right through it. We know when people are faking it. And God's omniscient. He sees right through us. What do you do? Well, let's go back to that story. You see, as that man pursued and pursued this woman who was his wife who was a prostitute, he did it for a reason. You see, God told Hosea, he said, Hosea, I need to tell, I need to send a message to my people, Hosea. I need to show them how I view my relationship with my people, Hosea. And I need to show them what it means when they sin, Hosea. So I want you to find this woman, I want you to marry her, and she is going to leave you time and time again, Hosea, but you're going to pursue and pursue and pursue because I need to show them what this relationship is about and what it's made of. It's going to come up here, Hosea chapter 2, and I want you to notice the language that God uses through Hosea when he talks about his people, and we are his people if we're in Christ. So look at what God says, therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Notice, God's not saying, I, I, I don't want you to view me as your boss. 
I don't want you to view me as I'm just the judge. He says, I'm your husband. Let's read on. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. The Baals are the idols that they were pursuing at the time. He says, no longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword in battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. But look at these next few verses. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those who called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. You see, with God... He's not in this relationship to have slaves and servants. He's in the relationship to have lovers. And God was using Hosea. God was telling Hosea, Hosea, people need to understand. And Hosea, I've written a law on my people's hearts that they hate adultery, that they understand that breach of relationship. They love romance. They love commitment. And they get it when someone deceitfully cheats on them. They understand that because I've written their law on my hearts. But the reason I did that, Hosea, was to represent what it's like to me when they sin against me. You see, what if for you, if you've put your faith in Christ, what if it wasn't just an insurance contract where you signed on the dotted line and you say, okay, God, I'll put my faith in you if you'll let me go to heaven when I die. What if that wasn't what it was to God, but instead to God, it was a wedding ceremony? And if instead to God, when you first put your faith and trust in him, that God and all of heaven watched as you vowed that, God, you are my Lord and you are my only way to salvation and that God, on the other hand, as the great loving father and husband to the bride, said, I will vow myself to you and I will vow that I will pursue, and I will pursue even when you commit adultery, even when you run, I will pursue you in love because I'm God. See, that's why we love romance so much, is it not? That's why every culture cannot get over this relationship between two people. We can try to change it, We can try to mess with it all we can, but at the end of the day, everybody wants romance in some capacity. Everybody wants to be loved. Why? Because God's put that on us to show that, hey, romance is good. Relationships are good, but they don't fully satisfy you. If you've been in here and you've been in a relationship, you know it's good. There's blessings from it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't fully give you everything you want. At the end of the day, people let you down. That's because God made it as it's just a taste of what's to come. It's just a taste. You see, to God, when he looks at you, he doesn't just see you and you're saved, but he sees the whole picture. And God says, look, I remember before you were born. I remember before your parents even knew each other that I planned out your whole life that I gave you a name, and that I planned that you'd be mine. I I even planned out what gifts and quirks you'd have. I even planned out how you'd serve me. I even gave you little weaknesses and struggles to keep you coming back to me. And I planned out that first day that my spirit would open your eyes, 
And my spirit would tell you, hey, there's something wrong inside you. My spirit would confront your sin like I confronted David. And it would say, hey, there's something wrong. It's called sin. But guess what? I have Jesus that died. And in that moment, you would confess your sin before God and you'd be saved. And God says, yeah, I remember that. But even in that vow to you, even in when I coveted myself to you, I knew that you'd betray me. And I knew that you'd have other lovers. But that's what makes me so good. And that's what brings me so much glory is that the whole world can see through the gospel that amidst all these people that run towards sin, I pursue and I pursue and I pursue and I pursue no matter what because my name's Almighty God. I am who I am. My word never changes. I never change my mind. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I'm never going to let you go. And that's what we see with David. David spit on God pretty bad. He had contempt towards God pretty bad. God could have said, you know what, David, we're done. I know I promised it stuff with you. I know I said I would do all this with you. You know what? I'm done. But instead, what do we see? He pursues. You see, what if our series, and what's it about? The pursuit of God, how to be a person after God's own heart. What if our series is not so much about how we pursue God, but more about how God pursues us? What if David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he just sought God so much. But what if it was when he was a little shepherd boy, if the, if, if shepherd boy that the Holy Spirit came down and said, David, you're mine. David, I'm going to shape you. David, I'm going I'm to get your heart. I'm going to give you a desire for me. And David, I'm going to pursue you no matter what because I love you and I'm God. You want to be a person after God's own heart. You can't do it. It starts with getting on your knees and saying, God, I want to be a person after God's heart. I don't know how to do it. I, I think I believe, but help my unbelief. God, give me a heart after you. So if you're here this morning, maybe God's doing a couple things. Maybe you're here and you've been hiding something. Maybe you haven't even been hiding it. You've just been living in it. You've been sinning, you've been just doing your own thing. In Christianity, you kind of have this idea that, well, I can hold on to my sin and I can hold on to God and I can kind of have one step or one foot in the truth and in the gospel and then one foot in the world and it's all okay. May you hear the Lord's voice this morning telling you no. It's all or nothing. Dare I say it, it's always a scary sentence to say the words God and cannot in a sentence. But did you know, God cannot be intimate with you if you are embracing your sin. Because really what it's like to God, it's like you're embracing your lover and your spouse walks in and over the shoulders of your lover, you look at your spouse and say, hey, I love you. I care about you. I want to be with you. What's your, what's your spouse going to say? You can't do it. And so in your heart right now, your sin's not worth it. Not only is it going to wreck your life, but it's going to separate you from God, the greatest good you'll ever experience. Today's the day. Say no more. And I know if you're like me, it's not easy to let go of sin. I've struggled all my life of these moments where I'm like, God, I want to be all out. I want to give up my sin, but then I'm back in it. And then I, okay, no, God, I'm going to give it up. I'm, I'm going I'm to get people around me to help me, and I want to follow you. I'm going to read my word. I'm going to memorize scripture. I'm going to do all this stuff. But then I find myself back in it. It's not easy, I know. 
But that's why God's so good. And that's why we have the story of Hosea that time and time and time again, God pursues and he pursues and he pursues. If you're here this morning, it's time to let go. It's time to repent. It's time to confess and say, God, no more. I don't want this, God. And that's why you have other Christians here at Brea, right? Is you don't even have to do it alone. Maybe today's the day where you're going to come up to some of your friends and a small group leader, pastor, whoever, and say, hey, I need help. I want to pursue God, but it's hard. And I, I, there's all this mess and all this stuff going on, but help me. And then we come around each other. We have each other. But maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. The sad reality is that if you don't, you are alone. God has not made a covenant with you. You haven't made a covenant with God. And when you sin, you have you and your sin. And that's it. It doesn't have to be that way, though. There's hope in Jesus. There's hope in the cross. There was hope for David. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. If you run to him and say, Jesus, I want you, he will forgive you. One closing verse. It's going to come up. The end of all things when God comes back. I, I just want you to see God's heart. That this is salvation to God. This is why he's made everything. This is why there's the earth. And this is what he's going to do. And notice his language towards those who know Christ. Look what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain for the old has gone away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end of the thirsty. I will give water without cost for the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. God wants to be with you. He doesn't need you, but for some odd reason, he chooses to love you and people like me. I, I don't understand. I've tried to figure it out. God, why do you love me? I don't know. I just know that he does, and I know that that makes him great, and it brings him glory. God wants to be with you. But you can't hold on to sin and hold on to God. You've got to give it up. So let us be people who are lovers of God. Let us be people who are all in.